0: Yeah, I apologize in advance for those of you that, uh, th- for whom this will be the second time you've had to hear me talk. Uh, this morning we, we got back to our uh, 9 o'clock in the morning uh, Bible study, small group type atmosphere that we have in this room here. Uh, so we do invite those of you that like to be a part of something like a small group. Um, it's a more intimate setting. Uh, we can get a little bit more authentic, uh, vulnerable with each other. Um, and uh, everything that we share in there is going to be prayed for. Uh, but not shared outside of there. Uh, so we want to uh, we want to be able to love on you um, and minister to you in any way that we can and that's one of the best ways I think the lifeblood of the church is found in small groups and that kind of atmosphere so and um, not with what what I'm doing right now, uh, I think uh, that's important uh, to reclaim the message of the gospel um, but I think the life of the church is found in its small group type function. So we do welcome each and every one of you. Uh, very glad to see the visitors uh, here among us today. Um, we uh, Let me know if you're not loved well enough this week, and I'll get on the church next week about it. Uh, but we are thankful to have you with us, and, and I suppose I'm still thankful to have those that uh, keep showing up week after week because it would be hard to do this without you. Um, a whole lot of effort goes on throughout the week um, uh, in practicing for worship, getting things ready the women meeting on Tuesday, men on Thursday. It's just a, a lot going on to build a kingdom here in Braidwood. And we want to be all about each other. As we talked about this morning in the small group, we want to be all about each other so that that love that we have for each other spills out into that community. And they can see the love of Jesus because they see how well we love each other in here. So uh, thank you for that. And I'm still kind of reeling from last week. You know, I... I uh, uh, it was a message I wasn't particularly fond of. I, I got done. I thought just I, I left some on the table, and I just didn't feel like I I, I, I really brought it, you know. And, and uh, that happens to pastors. Uh, we we're not, we don't always hit a home run, and we uh, we kind of beat ourselves up. But uh, but that was all muted in my mind by what I saw after the service. Um, and I saw God's people loving on each other, uh, laughing and joking, mostly at my expense. So we'll have to talk about we'll have to talk about that. I I don't know if that's going to continue. No, it will. I'm sure that it will. But uh, no, it's just uh, people walking out, laughing, and and uh, and having a good time. And really, that's that's what this is all about. We we want to serve Jesus well. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Um, but part of that is to is to have a good time and love each other. So we want to make sure that we maximize that as well. Um, I have a note in here uh, for football. Cue the football joke. All right, here's the, here's the football joke. I shouldn't tell you my, what my cues say. That's that's bad form for a speaker, but, um, so I know that, for, how many, where's the Bears fans? All right, so so your team already disappointed you earlier in the week, so we can move on from that, right? And Rose's team won't disappoint him until later today, uh, like 3 o'clock-ish, the Cowboys. So, um, I plan for my team, uh, the Steelers, to dominate the Patriots tonight at 7. Not, not everybody, not everyone in the room is as sanctified as the others, so... Uh, we'll, we'll talk. But the, the point being, though, the point being, right, is that we have uh, plenty of time. So uh, we, we won't keep anybody from any football games. So we did find out that we can, we can actually legally host games here. So if there's ever a Sunday night football game we want to watch here, we can do that and legally. Uh, we just got to be watch uh, the kind of advertising we do and don't use any logos and things like that. So if we, for our football fans, if you want to come be a part of that sometime, we'll have some pizza maybe, uh, some soda, and get, uh, get crazy up in here. Uh, as, they, as, they, as they say. You're all a gracious bunch this morning. I appreciate it. It's only downhill from here. Now we're going to pick back up in our study of Galatians uh, this week. Paul continues to develop his argument. You remember that uh, he, the reason he wrote to the Galatians, for those that haven't been here each week, the reason that he wrote the book of Galatians was because two things were under attack. Uh, his authority as an apostle was under attack. And the gospel itself, the message that he proclaimed, was under attack. And neither one of those things was okay, because even if Paul didn't care to defend himself for his own sake, uh, it tore down the, the building of everything that he put together up to that point was being potentially torn down by tearing down his authority. And, and so in chapters 1 and 2, he kind of introduces the argument, and really it's going to flesh out here in chapters 3 and 4. You may think, like me, as I'm looking through the future chapters, like, man, Paul just keeps repeating himself. But what do we say about when the Bible repeats itself? It's, it's trying to emphasize something so that we are not, sometimes we got to, I have a thick skull. Um, probably physically and metaphorically, but if you're like me, you ask God not for the still small voice, you ask for the two by four across your forehead. Because you hear a lot better when it's a two by four, right? Oh, That's me, that's always been me. Uh, I, I'll, I'll do anything for Jesus. I even pick a fight in his name if he asks me to. Uh, the problem is he's not asking me to. And sometimes I get ahead of myself uh, so if you're like me, sometimes you need to hear things over and over and over again to make sense of them, uh, and to finally get it through uh, into the DNA of your Christian walk. Uh, and so in chapters 3 and 4, we kind of see a crescendo uh, where Paul really uh, really takes off with his argument. We are going to be in Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. So if you wanted to turn there in your device, in your uh, physical Bible, I know those are falling out of popular usage, um, I actually really love a physical Bible. I use the electronic devices all the time. So I'm not downplaying those, but I love a physical Bible because uh, studies suggest that you remember a lot more from a physical uh, book medium than if you are just reading on a screen. And so I do a combination thereof, but I do like having my Bible open uh, and seeing where the words are on the page and getting involved. We're going to come back to Galatians 3, 1 through 9 in a moment, but first an illustration. Uh, I'm not big on illustrations all the time, mostly because I'm not creative enough to come up with them. Um... Bad jokes, yeah, I got those uh, for days, as they say. But, uh, uh, but illustration is a little bit more difficult. But I was reading in one of my commentaries I was uh, studying this week, uh, they presented a, an illustration that was too good to pass up because I think it perfectly kind of sets the table uh, for what we're going to be dealing with in the text before us uh, today. And that is the idea of a tightrope walker. You see the image there? Uh, that is uh, Charles Blondin. He was a, a French tightrope walker famous for, if you know anything about him, you probably know what he's famous for, for tightrope walking across the Niagara Falls. Now, this man had done this so many times that he had gained such confidence in doing it that he would start to add trickery to it. He would start uh, adding different things, blindfold me, make, give me stilts, how about a, a unicycle or some other thing to, just to make it more difficult. Uh, at one point in time, he actually he went to the middle and made an omelet and had breakfast on that tightrope. Dude was nuts. <laughs> I mean, you can, he was. The same people don't do that, right? Amen. Uh, anybody afraid of heights? I I like to say, I'm not afraid of heights. I have a a great respect for them. Uh, I know what will happen to my body if I fall from that height. Uh, And uh, so it's either a combination of courage or stupidity that uh, lets a guy like that do that sort of thing. But but Charles Blondin was so accomplished at it, so confident in that craft, that he would begin to do it in different ways and and, uh, add just different things to it to make it all the more exciting for for the onlookers to watch. And eventually he got crazy. Er. And he said, how about we add some other people to this mix? Who trusts me to, to wheel them across in a wheelbarrow? Who trusts me, eventually, said to get on my back and let me walk across this thing with you on my back? No thanks. Whereas our little guy Debo from Uganda says, no thanks. Uh, no thanks. Um, yeah, no thanks. I uh, don't think so. Uh, but imagine that the person that finally did, because he did get a volunteer to do it. Uh, and then a volunteer, they went across the Niagara Falls on a tightrope on Charles Blondin's back. And imagine halfway through if this guy who volunteered knows full well that I'm not doing that tightrope because I'm not, I can't do it. I don't have the skill set requisite to be able to do that. I'm not good enough. I, my balance will not keep me on that rope. But imagine halfway across, he says, you know what, Charles? Can I call you Charlie? He, he said yes because it's a made-up conversation. Um, he said Sure. Sure, Ralph, you can call me Charles, Charlie, Chuck. He says, I'd like you to drop me off right in the middle. I'll go ahead and take it from here, thanks. And who can imagine, even if you were brave enough to get on Charles Blondin's back, to begin that course, would think to yourself, the best course of action for me right now is to get off. The one who, who, in, whose, in whom I've placed all my confidence and all my trust and all my faith. In Him. Now this illustration is used pretty widely in churches to demonstrate the kind of faith it takes to put uh, a saving faith in Jesus. And so that's where we're going. But uh, imagine having put your saving faith in Jesus, the one who is demonstrated by virtue of his, his accomplishing his own death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. And you say, yeah, but, Charles, I'd like you to drop me off halfway. Jesus, I'd like you to drop me off halfway. I got it from here, Thanks. That's in a sense what the Galatians were doing or or were tempted to do under the false teaching that was presented to them at this time and and for which uh, Paul is offering a response. With that illustration out of the way, let's go ahead and uh, go to the Lord in a word of prayer uh, to add to what I am doing up here because uh, what I'm doing up here is not going to matter much if the Holy Spirit's not in it. So we're going to ask for the Spirit's power to be in this place this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for each and every single person that's here this morning, Father. Might we not waste their time. Might they sense that they are loved here, Lord, and not just loved here, but cared for enough that I don't want to waste their time. Lord, in order to be able to accomplish that, I need your Spirit's power this morning to add to the feeble words that I have planned, the power that I can't add to myself. And so, Father, as we get ready to dive into this portion of your word, we ask, Lord, for your spirit to be here powerfully. or for people that have uh, maybe walked away from you, would come back running to you as a result of what they see in your scriptures. or those that haven't, have never known a relationship with you, Lord, might, uh, might say this morning, I can't leave it, this place without fixing that. might you increase, might we decrease as a result, and might your kingdom swell in this area and beyond for your glory. We ask these things, Lord, we thank you in advance for your answers. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, amen. I don't know about you, but I never get used to praying in the name of Jesus, which is sometimes you hear me pause. Just kind of take in what I'm saying and take in what I'm doing when I call upon the name of the Lord, my Lord and Savior. The name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, whether you do so voluntarily here in this life or you do so under compulsion in the next. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He doesn't share glory with anybody. And I praise God for that because we are not enough in and of ourselves. I hope to make that clear in the remainder of the time we have together. You'll find, those that are new to hearing me speak, you'll find that I like to joke, but it doesn't take me real long to get uh, even more serious than I intended to, Um, more emotional sometimes than I ever want to, uh, because of the the, the weight of the subject matter before us. Um, Literally, eternity hangs in the balance of what we decide to do with Jesus. C.S. Lewis said you have three options with with Jesus. You can call him Lord, you can call him liar, or you can call him lunatic, but you can't say he was just a good teacher. Because a good teacher doesn't convince his best friends to die for a lie. And if he did that, he's not a good teacher. That leaves you only those options. He was either Lord, liar, or lunatic. I believe the evidence screams that he rose from the dead. An empty tomb marks the place where once he laid and didn't lay, more than it passed that third day. And why? Why would it be that the first reaction to that, the first skepticism to that would not be to show the grave was not empty? Why would the Romans and the Jewish elitists of the day not bring the disciples back to the tomb of the rotting corpse of their so-called Savior? I suggest to you it's because they didn't have the option. Because that tomb was empty. And so again, he's either Lord, he's liar, or he's lunatic, but he can't be all three, and he can't be just a good teacher. I'm calling him Lord this morning, and I hope that you, if you don't now, will by the end of the service call him Lord as well. To the text, Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. You may recall that, that Paul had just kind of taken a hiatus from his words directed at the Galatians to kind of reminisce about a, a back and forth that he had with the Apostle Peter. Kind of another big dog in the church, right? Big dog versus big dog, dueling it out. But Peter was wrong. Peter was acting hypocritically. He was acting like the Gentiles were okay to be part of this family that God had created through the gospel. But as soon as he was around the Jewish elitist, he kind of lost his nerve. And kind of slunk back away from and don't we do that today? We, we slink back away from people that we think, oh, this super righteous person over here, if they see me hanging out with this person over here or with that person over there, if they see me dealing with people with a drink in their hand or a cigarette in their mouth, they might think less of me. Let them think what they think. You're called to love every single person with, with, with air in their lungs to the cross. Without distinction. But Peter got wrapped up in the, in the popularity contest of the day and, and uh, he was hypocritical in his approach. But Paul leaves that discussion, if you want that, at the end of, uh, or most of chapter 2. You can go back and, and read that. But here he turns back to the Galatians and he starts with a bang. He says, oh foolish Galatians. In an emotionally charged uh, passage. One of the most emotionally charged passages in all of the Pauline corpus of writing. Oh foolish Galatians. Most translations have it as Foolish. One translation has it as senseless. The Kingdom New Testament, it was uh, British, uh, and it says witless. I kind of like that. You know how often I think in British uh, accents? Because everything sounds smarter in a British accent, right? The Phillips translation, I love this one, because this probably gets to the heart of what Paul's actually saying. Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. Pull no punches, Paul. Oh fools of Galatia. There's absolutely no flattery here and there need not be any flattery here because they're guilty of something that's going to walk them out of the presence of God, that's going to walk them away from a saving faith in Jesus and into a a form, a system of legalism by which they'll never be saved. And so he, he needs not flatter them into thinking that it's okay what they're believing. I applaud Paul's constant Willingness to say the hard things. A hard truth rather than an easy lie. I'll take a hard truth any day over an easy lie. Don't come to me with your nonsense about your, your, your easy believism or your, your cheap grace or, or anything of the sort. I want no part of that. I want it pure and unadulterated. If it's hard to hear, it's hard to hear. We call them the hard sayings of Jesus. But there's no flattery here. He refers to... When he says fool, when he says senseless one or witless one, he's saying they have a lack of wisdom. I seem to remember in the book of James, a a remedy to a lack of wisdom. When James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God to give him wisdom. And God wants to give liberally. And he sometimes feel like a situation is just bigger than you. A situation is just beyond you. You don't have the answer, so you ask God for wisdom. And sometimes that comes through a still small voice. Sometimes it comes, let me hear it, by a baseball bat or that two by four that I prefer. Kind of flattens out the the forehead. So when I'm resting it at my desk, it, it sits it sits still. But you have a lack of wisdom, you need only to ask God who wants to give to you wisdom liberally. He wants to give it to you. He doesn't want you walking around like an idiot. Uh, he wants you successful in this life in his version of success, not your own. But if anyone lacks wisdom, just ask for it. They didn't need to stay in their foolishness. But it wasn't just a lack of wisdom on their part. It was actually some misleading forces at work. Moving on with the text, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now, well, Bewitched is kind of a word we don't use a whole lot anymore. Uh, More on that in a moment. But uh, Paul, actually, this is the first in a series of rhetorical questions he's asking. A couple reasons they're rhetorical. One, they don't need the answer, right? Rhetorical question doesn't really want the answer, wants you to think about the question. Because you already know the answer, right? But secondly, he's writing a letter, so he's not planning on getting an answer back. He wants them to just think about these things. Who has bewitched you? Who has charmed you? Who has cast a spell over you? We need not get wrapped up in the, ter- the, term, uh, the terminology bewitched as if this is some sort of seance or, or casting an actual spell, though let's not minimize that. In our day today, there are probably more people interested in, in witchcraft than ever before. It's not, a, it's not an archaic vestige of the past. It's alive and well in this world as we wrestle against flesh, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, demons. We talked about that a bit this morning in our group time. But it also can mean that they're fascinated by a false representation. They're fascinated by a misrepresentation of the facts. And that can be easy, right? How many of you are guilty on Facebook of sharing this post because you want to make sure you get the blessings associated with sharing that post? Stop doing that. <laughs> That's not how it works. But we get, uh, we get convinced by things It wasn't just any, and again, he's not asking for the names of anybody. It's singular here, meaning that there might have been one person he's thinking of as kind of a chief false teacher. But later in chapter 5, he's actually going to make it plural, so we need not get carried away with thinking it's a single person he's got in mind. It's more the fact of their bewitching that they let themselves be deceived. We have got to be discerning people. We cannot walk into public schools and universities and other places with our, our token theology. Our Sunday school variety and depth theology. I think it was Carl Barth that said every single Christian is a theologian. It's just a question of whether or not you're a good one. It's not just the job of the pastor, teacher, scholar, academic to know his Bible. It's the job of every single person. It's why so many lives were, were, were lost in the transmission of this text into English so that you could have 18 different versions of it you leave on your shelf each week collecting dust. And how many of us have been guilty of losing our Bible until the next Sunday when we're looking for it again? That wasn't me. I I don't want to be... I'm not going to blame myself for everything. <laughs> I, most things. I'm, I'm guilty of most things. Who has bewitched you? And, and we have all sorts of competing interests in... Society today, popular culture, wanting to be popular. Academia, looking to twist the things that we say we believe, twist the idea of of God. If you're a football fan, and sorry for all the football references, I'm pretty jacked about football season being back. So pardon me, I'll recover here in a moment, but uh, it's only going to get worse actually towards January and February next year. But recently, uh, there was a quarterback from the New Orleans Saints who uh, took a stand and said, I recommend and I, I applaud the children that bring their Bibles to bring your Bible to school day. And for saying that, making a simple statement and profession of his faith, he's been excoriated by the media, called a bigot, saying he's lined up against the LGBTQ community. He said nothing of any of that stuff, and I think we should love those people to the cross. Whatever you're struggling with, no sin is, is so... so nasty so devastating that jesus can't save you from it and so we we're not called to hate people for certain sins certain types of sins but he wasn't saying nothing about that and for it he was excoriated twisting his words and making it something it wasn't we have people looking to bewitch all sorts of things looking to mislead and misrepresent all sorts of things in our lives who has bewitched you oh foolish galatians you idiot galatians it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. In other words, this was not hidden from you. He was on full display. Now, that's not to say it was on full display literally. These Gentile Christians from Galatia were likely not around when Jesus was actually crucified, and so while the word the word literally means portrayed as in a, a bulletin board or a a uh, more more to the point maybe uh, a billboard sign on the highway. Nobody can miss that. It's, it's out there for everyone to see. What Paul is saying is that in my message to you, when I came and planted churches in Galatia, it was all throughout every message. It was in the kerygma, the Greek for proclamation. I proclaimed this to you day in and day out. This was the basis for which we founded the church here in Galatia. And now you're walking away from it. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as Crucified metaphorically, it became the shorthand for the gospel himself when he says, you see Jesus on the cross, you know what that means. He didn't just die for the sake of dying. He died so that he might pick a fight with death and come out victorious. So that one day we'll pick a fight with death. And as we're plugged into him, we'll come out victorious. That was a good spot for him. Amen. I'll give you another, <laughs> should give you another run at that, but uh, I know it's, it's, it's drizzly outside and I didn't want to get up either. I wanted to stay in bed and, Um, But I was too fired up to come here and preach to you this morning to do that. I'll take a nap and get ready for the Steelers game tonight. Okay, that's it. I promise that's it for the football references. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And let me ask you only this, he says, Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did you receive the Spirit? A believer, when they, upon conversion, receives the Spirit. In regards to what you do theologically with, with, with other uh, baptisms of the Spirit, or other moments with the Spirit to different depths, to different degrees, every believer in Jesus, at their conversion experience, receives the Spirit. And that's what he's talking about. How did that come about? Did that come about by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, the only real evidence of a conversion that we have is a pers- that the person has the presence of the Spirit in them. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9 says this. That book I told you, I won't feel, I won't feel ready to preach Romans for another 30 or 40 years, but, uh, but I can go ahead and make reference to it because it's a great book. Romans 8 and verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. That's a scary thought. Whoever does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him and thus does not have the things secured for them that are promised only in Christ. You want to ask why I'm so exclusive with the gospel? Don't have a choice. If I'm going to pretend to preach this book, it can only be in an exclusive fashion. Not Jesus among many, but Jesus only. Jesus high and lifted up. gives me goosebumps. Even more than... (laughs) I didn't say it. I didn't say it. The only real evidence of conversion for a person is the presence of the Spirit in them. And the real change that occurs when you have the Spirit of God in you is that there will be real evidence of it in your life. We had a conversation, a number of us were gathered, uh, hanging out Friday night, and uh, it was mentioned. Um, I'll go ahead and give her credit. credit. Pa- Patty Bassel said, uh, you know, nobody can take your testimony. You know, when I get ready to talk to people who are atheists or skeptics, and I love talking to them. You got some friends that I need to talk to? You sent it my way. I, and it's not a cocky thing. I love hearing their story. How did you, maybe you once believed and walked away. I love hearing about that. So maybe we can identify what, where, the, where the, uh, the miscue was. And so I can pray more specifically for them. But I love having an, an answer. Uh, another passage that was brought up Friday night was, uh, be ready always to give an answer to anybody that asks the hope that lies within you. We are charged as Christians to live in hope. To walk around knowing that the battle's already won, that we have victory, as the song was saying. We have victory in Jesus, and we should live our lives in light of that. And then we should be ready to give answers to that. I have not always been able to do that in my life. And so I strive now to study enough to show myself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So I can come with it, I can bring it. When God gives me an opportunity, I don't, I don't uh, he sets the ball on the tee and I just, I just totally whiff. I don't want that. They do want to smash that thing out of the park. That was a baseball reference, not a... <laughs> you get it. <laughs> but we don't have a choice of being exclusive. We want real conversion, not some pat version of it. Not some pseudo version of it. So many people gather on Sunday thinking they have it... They've never truly known Jesus. Another passage we shared this morning, Matthew chapter 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not drive out demons? Do we not prophesy in your name? Do we not do all these fancy tricks? And he will say to them what? Depart from me, I never knew you. Not I used to know you, but, but I don't now. I never knew you. That should call into question what we, what, how we measure our Christianness. It's measured not by doing fancy tricks, even healings and prophesying. That's not the measure of a Christian. The fruit of the Spirit is the measure of the Christian. You will know them by their fruit. If the Galatians had already received the Spirit without the law, not needing to obey the law, Why would they need it now? Why would they need it now? And in case they still weren't hearing him, Paul continues but turns the screws even tighter. You can imagine him coming down even harder than he already has. He says again, are you so foolish? Which is to answer his own question, yes you are. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You had the thing that you needed most of all. And so to add to that, in some way you think you're going to add something you don't really, a little want or something you don't really even need, and and think that you're perfecting it by doing so. It's a mockery to God. It's a mockery to what Jesus, the finished work on the cross, which is why we call it the finished work. It's analogous, I think, to uh, a, a Pulitzer Prize winning author taking a manuscript of their next book and saying, you know what, I think I'm going to go to my high school journalist editor and see what they think. I'm pretty, I mean, I've got, I've got eight New York Times bestsellers, but I think I'm going to take this manuscript and go see what they think about it. it it's the the, the greater doesn't come to the lesser and ask its permission or its approval. Another analogy, perhaps a, a world-renowned painter coming to a grade school art class and saying, what do you think about my brush strokes here? What do you think about the... Imp- I don't know why I did that. Sometimes I think uncontrollably. It's not the spirit, it's just me being weird. Um, I figured you'd have something for that row, but... We, we actually need to have row mic'd up, I think, Sunday morning. Yeah, that's weird enough. But a, a great painter asking the opinion of a three-year-old. What do you think about these brush strokes and this... Uh, what do you think I'm trying to convey by this painting? Or how about this? Your, your cardiologist tells you you are on a fast track to your own demise... You need to slow down with the saturated fats and all the nonsense. And you say, well, thanks, Doc. Appreciate the opinion. I'm going to go check with my trainer at the gym. And that is not to belittle the trainer. That's to say the the trainer doesn't specialize in the heart. And so you don't ask the lesser uh, the opinion and the approval of what the greater already gave you. And the, the gospel of Jesus Christ was the greater. Faith in Jesus was the greater to which no slavish adherence to the law was needed. Having experienced the freedom from the bondage of the law, how can you add to your freedom by returning to bondage? Man, this freedom feels so good. I think I'd like to add a little, what's that, bondage to it. It doesn't make any sense. It's antithetical. It doesn't, it's completely ironic It's not just wrong, it's 180 degrees from right. We cannot work our way into the good graces of God. He's provided a way because we're incapable. And that's so much better than trying to work at it. You'd have to be foolish to move on from one to the other, and that's why uh, Paul called them twice foolish. think about the man on Blondin's back. Opting instead to walk himself. He hasn't been proven. He hasn't, he hasn't gotten out and demonstrated he can take the first step and not fall down. I have a pretty good sense of balance, I think, but there's no way I'm getting, getting up on that rope and walking. And so there's no way I'm probably getting on his back, but even if I was foolish enough to get on his back, I'm not getting off. That dude's going to have permanent clutch marks. He might have to pry me off at the other end. But imagine thinking, I have not proven this, I have not tested myself in this, but I'm going to get off anyway. To my certain demise, I'm going to get off. Are you so foolish that yeah, you'd have to be? Having begun with the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Verse 4, he goes on, Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Now look, belief in Jesus, belief in the Gospel didn't cost them nothing. See the double negative there? It costs them something. You can go through Acts and read all about Paul's trip to Asia Minor and the southern portion we're probably dealing with here. Lystra, Derby, Iconium. I don't have time to go through all those passages, but look through Acts, look for those portions. You'll see that they went through the poisoning of their minds. People trying to, and we see it again here, the poisoning of their minds. Mistreatment, stonings. You know what it looked like to stone somebody in the, in the first century? They a pit. Or sometimes bury them up to their chest or shoulders and drop heavy rocks on their heads. Brutal stuff. Ugly stuff. These are things they are enduring for the sake of the gospel. He says, did you endure these things in vain? Did you go through these things in vain? Paul, in this, this place, in this geographical setting, Paul was stoned and believed to be dead. He was left for dead. And it may very well be that that the Spirit resurrected him from the dead to bring him back because God wasn't done. And I like to say the man and woman of God is invincible until the will of God is complete in their lives. You are untouchable until God says it's time. And then don't worry about it. Leave it in his hands. If he said it's time, it's time. So again, why would they turn their back on that thing that A, cost them so much and B, provided for their freedom from the yoke and the weight of the law? If they return to the thing that kept them enslaved, their freedom was indeed in vain. Imagine paying somebody's, bonding somebody out of jail. And with their newfound freedom, they say, eh, I just, it was cozy there. I think I'll just head back. Lock me up. It's that antithetical. I hope you're getting it by now. It's that antithetical. To think that you can muster up enough energy to impress God with your filthy rags. And this is not to be depressing. This is God wants you to, to do good works. In fact, once you meet Jesus in a salvific or saving way, He wants you to be plugged into that. Good works follow true repentance and conversion. They don't precede it. They don't... It's the cart before the horse. Imagine putting a, a, a cart in front of a horse and asking the horse to push it it's going to look like a mess. Well, that's what you looking like. You're trying to work for your salvation. That's what it looks like. But once we're saved in thankfulness for the cross and thankfulness for what God has done for us, we say, man, I'm going to give you my life. No nominal Christians in this room. You either believe Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords and deserves to be high and lifted up, or you deserve he is a liar or a lunatic. Let's not come with this nonsense about some middle ground. You can't put this thing on like a sweater. It's not a sweater for you to wear Foolish Galatians. Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Another rhetorical question. The final in the series of rhetorical questions that he asks them. Man, I, I don't want to get letters from Paul. <laughs> I imagine if he wrote wrote a letter to the Americans, God help us. God help us. And I, I heard some chuckles and I can, I, can, I can meet you there, kind of funny and cartoonish, but man, the, church, the, the letter to the church at the Americas. I'm not ready for that one, Paul. Not only was salvation not found in the works of the law, neither was there power or miracles to be found as a result of obedience to the law. It, from Pentecost on we saw all these amazing things happen. It went from the old testament, once in a while you saw a prophet do something crazy or predict something. And then all of a sudden Pentecost comes and you see it happening left and right. Why would you want to leave that that, that, that place in which you're seeing the hand of God in everything that you do? Why would you want to leave that and go back to a time where only certain people got spoken to by God? It's inferior. The Old Testament, I'll say it. You may think it me heretical for saying it. the Old Testament is inferior to the new. Then the new makes the old obsolete. If you think I'm being heretical, check Hebrews. It's in there. Just in case I get an angry conversation at the end. We'll go straight to Hebrews together. Andy Stanley's taking a lot of flack for saying that very thing. If you know who Andy Stanley is, he's he's getting a lot of bad press for saying that. But he's right. And then comes the nail in the coffin of his argument. He goes back to Abraham. Which was Abraham before or after the law? Abraham was before the law. By about 430 years. Right, So, predates the law. Verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted or reckoned unto him as righteousness. That's a quotation of Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. And what it means to be reckoned or counted to you is to make a deposit into another's account. Why did the deposit need to be made into your account? Because you didn't have the funds to write the check. You didn't have enough. Your spiritual checkbook was empty. At the point at which you met Jesus for the first time in a saving sense, your checkbook was empty. And it's only full now because of him. And thank God it is full. You go and write those checks. Have that faith. Have that confidence in the finished work of Jesus. He goes back to Abraham. What was deposited was righteousness. Righteousness is a legal term being meaning right standing. You're reckoned as having right standing with God, even though since the Garden of Eden and the fall in Genesis chapter three, we have not we as a people did not have a right standing with God, but because of Jesus we do. We have the opportunity. We are reckoned righteous when we are not. We are reckoned worthy when we are not. This deposit was made as a result of uh, saving faith, not adherence to the law. In fact, the law wasn't even given yet when Abraham believed or trusted God. And it wouldn't be for 430 years. Look at this next couple of verses. It says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Uh, His spiritual descendants are not necessarily the same group as his physical descendants. Uh, Paul goes through this at length in the book of Romans. Again, the book of Romans keeps coming up. Romans chapter 9 verse 7. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. What is this promise? The promise he made to Abraham. The promise was to Abraham. The covenant was established with him. He made this old guy who had no business having kids to have kids and and, and heirs through whom the Messiah would come. So it's not about their genetic makeup. It's not about being physically descended from Abraham. It's about being spiritually descended through faith, that God was making this one a universal family. So that at one point in time, we as Gentiles were, were, were cast-offs, outcasts, not, 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 uh, not invited to the table. And now we have a spot at the table with our name on it. Verse 8, And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the, the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Why would Paul continue to drive this point so hard if it was not of massive import and massive consequence? If you are here this morning, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up as we close this out. But if you are here this morning and have never had that experience where you said, I believe in Jesus as King of kings, Lord of lords of my life, and you received the Spirit, I want to challenge you not to leave this place without talking to me or to somebody else that might be able to explain to you what that means. Now some of you came here and you were rightly impressed by that illustration. You were rightly impressed by the tightrope story. I say rightly because it's, it's, it's an incredible feat. It's, it's crazy that he could do that. But maybe you're like me and you would never be willing to get on Blondin's back. You'd never even think about it. Uh, for some in here, that parallel, the spiritual parallel, is the truth for you this morning. That you see what crazy and awesome and miraculous things Jesus Christ did in those three short years of ministry. Capped off by the fact that he raised himself from the dead. And an empty tomb marks it for more that that happened. But while you're aware of that, you've not made it your own part of your own story. You've not made it part of your testimony that nobody can take it from you. Don't leave here without at least having the back and forth with me. About why that's the case. Why you haven't done that. Others of you long ago jumped eagerly on Blondin's back. You eagerly put your faith in the finished work of Jesus. You trusted with confidence that he was capable. That Jesus was enough. But like the Galatians, after starting in faith, you want to finish on effort. God wants your effort. I'm not saying he doesn't. But don't get the cart before the horse on that. Let me be clear. You need Charles Blondin. You need the person who is representative of him in that story. You need Jesus. Period. To get across your spiritual Niagara. You're not getting there without him. There's one way to the Father. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man or woman comes to the Father but by me. Those aren't my words. They're His. The Bible is clear and life, I think, makes it obvious that Romans 3.23 all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It means our credit, uh, our account was empty. Our check, our spiritual checking account was empty. And the punishment for that says in Romans 6.23 the wages or payment for that sin is death. But, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Trust that Jesus, who has demonstrated his faithfulness, his ability to get across that tightrope, trust that he's capable of carrying you as well. And give your life to the faithful one. We're going to close here in a word of prayer. As you close your eyes and get ready for prayer, I'm going to ask that you pray with me. You pray audibly if you want. Uh, We're going to pray for a, a kingdom work to be done that's so Uh, Fantastic in this area that we can't take credit for it. We're going to pray for Jesus to do amazing things, the Spirit to do amazing things in and through us in this area. That is so amazing that we can't take credit for it. And so I invite you to pray with me, pray in agreement with me, pray in appreciation of the same God who never fails us. He's not going to fail us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I sense uh, an urgency about this message. Father, I, I sense a, a heaviness with the fact that what a beautiful message it is, it is, but but not everybody has taken advantage of it. There are still people perhaps in, in the crowd today, Lord, that don't know you. Others of us who who stray, we, we we do know you, and even though we know the beauty of you and your promises, we walk away. The problem with the Living sacrifice, we keep getting off the altar. Father, as we all pray together, I want you to hear our voices loud and clear. We want what you want in this area, we want what you want in this town, we want what you want in this building. Father, don't let us settle for less, don't let us settle for what we're capable of building with our own hands. Father, we want miracles. We want to see souls saved. We want to see hungry people fed. We want to see marriages restored. We want to see broken people made whole. Father, we can't do that on our own. We're asking your spirit to remain powerful in this place and beyond as we pursue that. And I pray these things in the name that is above every other name. The name in which every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess pray in the name of Jesus.